Welcome to Lonely Cello. Welcome to the Lonely Cello podcast. I'm Emily Wright and I am here with Ragnhild Wesenberg. Ooh, what a name. <laughs> I know, I know. The English version version is Ragnhild. Oh, really? We 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 go ahead and give you like multiple syllables. I always Yeah, it's a beautiful name. Where are you from? I'm from Norway. It's a very typically Norwegian name. It means something like advice and battle it's pretty old pre-christian and it's uh, not actually it's not common i live in sweden now the neighbor country and here it's that like some a few old women who's called that but in norway it's quite yeah it's not uncommon well it will probably come around again like my name is extremely common now but everybody actually thought Emily was like a an, kind of an old lady name like Esther or things like that and then every name just it will continue to come around so maybe in 10 years there'll be yes. many ragnilds <laughs> pervading <laughs> um so I met you we kind of like met online and you had me on your podcast and um, we got going as cellists do, right? We just have like all the stuff in common. Um, I just wanted to know a little bit actually about your podcast, kind of why did you start it and when did you start it? Yes, my podcast. It was early 2021 when it was still COVID restrictions on and people were not socializing very much. And for some uh, not very practical reason. I I realized that that was the time to get into being a cellist for a living. Um, and since it wasn't really the time to meet people, I simply started by making a podcast because I realized very quickly that there were so, so many things to do with being a freelance cellist that I had not I wasn't prepared for there was mm. so much to learn or learning what I had to learn you know and so much to do with software editing um, audio and editing video and uh, I didn't even have an Instagram profile so I was just new to so many things anything to do with promoting myself and getting out there I was even quite new to teaching so I really felt like reaching out to, in the beginning, especially my musician friends who had already long ago jumped into the whole musician thing and had experienced how it's like. And I just asked them a lot of questions and I felt like sharing that with others. So that's how the podcast started. I think a lot of people... Um, so there's like nothing like a, a life-changing global pandemic to make you reconsider what's important in your <laughs> life, especially when you don't have like exterior things to do. Um, it's funny though, you're talking about um, like you didn't even have an Instagram profile. And I'm just thinking about like when when you interviewed me, you talked a little bit about like my YouTube page and you were like, there's all this weird stuff on there. And I think part of it was I 
I didn't realize that social media was actually going to be something that was going to be a promotional machine. I was just like, well, yeah, I'm just a person and I take pictures of pretty trees and things that I like. Um, do you feel like, um, like, do you feel like your social media is mostly actually about your brand as a cellist or like a something to like generate publicity as opposed to like a place for you to kind of personally interact with people or a bit of both? Uh, so I, that's been a little bit of a journey in the beginning. Uh, I just had Facebook. That was my only thing. And in the beginning, it was a, a personal thing for sure. And I would post about political things. And I had a period of being like, um, hardcore vegan and like promoting my views and stuff like that. And then I so I'm I've made a new Facebook profile for myself now three times and this third time I did it I put cello in my name just to make sure it would be cello specific only and my reason for doing that was actually to make things a lot easier for myself because I realized the internet is not really my preferred place to discuss political things yeah, there's no nuance there a lot of times uh, uh, it's just draining it, it doesn't is. lead to anything good so I decided with my current Facebook that I made not very long ago actually that this is only for cello stuff and now with the Instagram it I feel more and more that I'm not posting for my friends even though my friends can of course appreciate seeing whatever I have to share but it's been quite liberating for me to realize that I'm not posting for my friends now in particular mm. yeah um and before we move on what is the name of your podcast and also how can people find this cello specific Facebook what are those two right my podcast is called the musician's journey podcast All right yes um I I uh, almost freaked out at some point I was five six episodes in and I saw that there was another podcast with exactly the same name and I I uh, just I actually <laughs> changed the name of my podcast but only a few seconds I don't think anyone in the world noticed it <laughs> because because I realized after I had been changing the name everywhere that this other Musician's Journey podcast seemed quite dormant. Not much was happening there. So I decided to hold on to the name myself. Yeah, uh, no, I did the same thing. Um, so like I have Tamarack Arts and I did a search um, just to make sure that there was no other nonprofit with this name and there wasn't. But then I saw later on that there was a place called the Tamarack Center for the Arts, very, oh, very similar. And yes. um, our missions are slightly different. So hopefully we're not like treading on each other's toes. But um, I would hope that if it was a problem, they would reach out to me and just be like, you know, are you looking for this other Tamarack? Here's a link to them, right? <laughs> just like, anyway, but I don't think it's possible. I think every name for every podcast and every organization has already been taken at some point. So you are the most active musician's journey. So I think I think that gives you the, the right to claim it for now. Well, as far as I know, 
Uh, as far as you know. Who knows? I, I'm not really the best researcher on the internet. I'm pretty lazy. So I, I'm not really, I haven't spent hours trying to find how many other Musicians Journey podcasts there are. But there are for sure podcasts with very similar names. But yeah, like today, it's just exploded with with names and logos and styles and just everything. It's it's pretty hard to find one's own. Yeah, that's pretty hard. But my um, uh, so my Facebook is simply Ragnil Vesenberg. That's my page. Actually, I made a page as well. But even my personal profile is cello related that's where I post when I have a new episode of the podcast for example and that's Ragnhild Eskeland Vesenberg so there is a another name in my name to make it even worse for everyone I don't think it's worse Uh, I don't think it's worse it's like it's like another movement of a beautiful piece I think it's fine and we will make sure that um that there are links to it in the show notes so nobody has to worry about misspelling your name we will have it spelled correctly underneath there and we can practice saying it with the real pronunciation I promise we are musicians (laughs) we will use our ears to get better at this we Um, can do it yeah I think so and my my personal Facebook is also just all public, so it's free for anyone to go in there and see if they want to reach out and say, oh, hey, you're also doing that thing. That's really nice. Just, uh, yeah, I'm the only one in the world with my name, so it's it's hard to oh, that's miss. That's great. Yeah. So um, there is... <laughs> I've gotten a couple emails for this other Emily Wright, who is, I think, almost the same age. And she was living in Los Angeles and she was a producer on a bunch of Britney Spears things. And I was like, I wish I was a producer on Britney Spears albums. (laughs) But no, I am just a cellist, alas. But yeah, there's there's so many Emily Wrights out there. There's probably an Emily Wright within 100 miles of here. They're just absolutely everywhere. One of my students, actually, her mom's name is Emily Wright. Oh wow! Which is yeah, so, it's completely what random. To, what do you do to stick out among the Emily Wrights? Because you haven't taken on like an artist name or something. Well, I don't know if there are very many Emily Wright cellists, and so usually I just put cello at the end of all of that. And since I am an old person, I was really early on the internet, so I was able to snag all of like the Emily cellos. I actually gave up in uh, Twitter, like in May. I just, it was too much for me. And also the whole Elon Musk thing. And it's just, it's a sewer. I just, it was so dangerous to go on there because even if I said something that was totally innocuous, people, right, they'll just find you. But I was really proud of being like Emily Cello on Twitter. And then I just kind of let that go. Um, And then with my student, though, she and I have each other in our phones as the other Emily, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, you're a teacher and a performer, and I know you bill yourself as being kind of early in your teaching career, but um, I think you've been playing so long and thinking analytically for a long time. Um, Like, where do you... Where do you feel like your your teaching style comes from? Is it from like the lessons you learned when you were a student, your experience as a performer or both or something entirely different? Yeah, that was a, that's a it's a good question. I hadn't thought about that. And um some of it for sure comes from some of the teachers I've had. 
um, which makes me appreciate when a teacher would repeat the same thing many times because that's the only way something can stick, you know? So I should not feel bad if I'm repeating something again and again if I think it's a good idea. <laughs> yeah, but um, a lot of it simply comes from my experience with playing the cello as well, I realized. So throughout my studies I was very interested in the way I practiced for example I would ask my teacher a lot of questions and I also like to ask my fellow students things to do with practice um uh when I was doing my bachelor's in Manchester at the Royal Northern uh, College of Music uh, I was there briefly at the same time as Stepan Hauser was there was that and with I, Ralph Kirschbaum was he there at that time I think so I yeah. think so yes uh, I didn't study with him but I think maybe Hauser did yeah but um yes I caught him one day in the library and I asked him how he warms up mm. because I I don't know, I guess I was at the age where anything could confuse me. So I was like, how should I warm up? There are so many different ways. And I was seeking advice around me. And he said he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> he warms up by checking his likes on Instagram, right? <laughs> he cracks his knuckles and then just <laughs> practices for 10 hours or whatever. <laughs> uh, I'm sure if I had his Instagram, I would feel pretty warm just looking at how right? many likes I got every day. Yeah, I think so. No, he said he just goes straight into the Dvořák. So I don't know if he was serious with me or cracking a joke. I'm not sure. Maybe it was a bit secretive. But yeah, my my way of teaching really comes from just... It's just this natural extension from being a student myself. It really feels like that. That's exactly how I feel. I honestly feel like when I'm teaching a student that I'm not like some master of all of the things, but rather I feel like I'm on the path and I have like a lantern and I'm just like, here's just like a little bit, like here's kind of what worked for me. Or also, I mean, when I'm teaching, I don't know about you, but like sometimes you have to experiment to be like, well, try this, does that help you? And sometimes the answer is actually that was not helpful and it confused them even more, right? So you just kind of have to, you know, lots of trial and error. Um, and actually going back to warming up though, how do you, how do you warm up now? Because like my warm up has changed so much over the years. Yeah, yeah, that's a journey of, of its own, isn't it? When I was studying, I would do the scales and arpeggios, and but I found that <laughs> that I just got really exhausted from playing scales. Like if I if I play a lot of scales, I need a proper break before yeah. I can get into anything else. So I. I realized uh, later that I, well, I kind of just stopped doing that, to be honest. It's been a while since I played scales. Uh, what I do now is that um, I I don't have a strict routine with warming up. I'm pretty intuitive. I like to sit down. Uh, well, walking to my practice room is kind of warming up the, the whole body. That's really nice. Yeah. It's harder to just sit down at home without having moved at all. But I sit down and I feel into what I simply feel like doing. 
and it can then be some kind of improvisation of like warm-up improvisation of uh, getting back to how does it feel for the fingers to be in contact with the string how does it feel to move from one tone to the next just the most basic things that I tell my beginner students to do I, I can still always come back to the very basic um, but I also like to play proper etudes which is also quite tiring but I'm you know I I pick a slow tempo I start out carefully but there's something very satisfying about keeping certain repertoire in the loop for yes. sure yeah I I highly value just having a mental library of of studies and uh, Bach suites that I right. can just, you know, my whole life, I will just keep coming back to these things. And then I will warm up playing these things in my, in my library. Yeah. Mental I think, library. I think popper etudes also are the most, like, they are some of the most difficult, like when you get into some of the really kind of complicated ones. But I think like minute for minute, they give you the highest return on your investment. Like even if you fail at it, you've still kind of progressed at, at the <laughs> instrument and it makes you think in a very different way. It's like you just have to be totally accountable with your body and with your understanding of like where the notes are and what he's asking you to do. Um, but I think we might, we might do the exact same kind of warm up. I just decide like, what do I really want to improve on today? And if it's the first page of like right now, one of my students is working on the Kapolevsky. And so I, you know, I'm picking it back up so I can be a better teacher. And so I'm just like, I'd like these five measures to improve. And so after I do like a drone or I play against an open string and just kind of get my intonation going and get my ears tuned in then it's like my body and my mind have warmed up. And I still do a ton of scales, probably because I'm working on some pretty fundamental techniques. So like um, I recently discovered that I hear the note B very flat. I don't know why. I just hear it as like extremely flat. So I'm like working on pushing that up. So playing a lot of B oh. and F sharp scales <laughs> just to try to like get wow. my ear going. Um, but, but then um, I feel like, a scale is something that you should practice when you are already warm because it requires you to be extremely disciplined in your mind. And that's not the place where you usually are when you sit down. So it's like, I feel like the dust has to settle before I do something complicated, like really paying attention to my technique on a scale. Yeah. And scales feels like really its own practice session. I could, I would rather dedicate, you know, okay, this hour... I'm just going to go to my room. I'm just going to focus on scales. But it's so tiring on all levels, also mentally. It's just, yeah. yeah it's exhausting. It is. Yeah. It is, And that's how it should be. Because if you if you play scales because they're quote unquote easy, you are missing it. Oh, I just crashed yeah. into the microphone. Sorry. Nobody was harmed. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but yeah. It, um, and that's the whole thing. I feel like during your practice of things that are supposed to be simple, your mind has to be very focused. And yeah, I 
I'll every now and again, I'll get lost and I'll just be like, wow, 45 minutes on a B major scale and arpeggio and whatever. But, um, but yeah, it requires, I think the most, um, focus and like the most accountability you, you have to offer. So, you know, thinking about teaching, um, I do learn a lot from my students. For instance, I see a lot of, um, like tendencies and mistakes that I used to make. And I can just see how like they've decided that it is worth it, <laughs> right? To not like change their technique. And I, I see like that resistance in myself sometimes. Um, I'm just wondering if teaching actually has changed the way either you approach your instrument or you approach practice. Um, Cause yeah, I feel like it's two ways. I feel like I learn a lot from students. Yeah, so now I've been teaching for, um say two years only uh so at this point well what i've what i am learning the most from my students is simply to be a better teacher mm. uh, so i i felt a little bad in the beginning i knew that my first students would be my guinea pigs you know they were... <laughs> right i didn't say it out loud but i knew that it's a it's a learning curve for sure um so I'm definitely improving constantly just as a teacher, which is very enjoyable, very interesting. Like it's been a fascinating experience to simply be reminded of what does it mean to be an absolute beginner? Yeah. What does it mean to not know how to read sheet music? Because I can't remember a time of not knowing that, you know? Um. And I guess I'm also, I have been afraid that my students will be bored. So I have had a tendency to move forward quickly. And if they have wanted to play a piece, I've been very eager at like providing them with that piece, even though it's way too difficult yeah. for them. So I think I'm learning to slow everything down, that there's nothing wrong with that. They were probably not get bored and if they do get bored they can let me know but I think a lot of people actually appreciate a slow tempo so I have mainly adult beginners and uh, I think they a lot of them feel a little intimidated if things go too fast um yeah it just depends on the student because some students are just like I want to stay on this until it's as good as it can get I feel it's tough for beginners because when they say something like, I want to play this un until it's beautiful. And I'm like, that's like seven years down the road. So I don't think yes. you want to stick on this. <laughs> like, right. Cause it's just like the, the first kind of five years are such an insult to the ego, right? It is so hard. I mean, you and I both practice and I make lots of sounds that are terrifying, right? Then I'm like, wow, I really missed that shift. My bow made this totally unpredictable sound. And you and I've been doing this right for basically our whole lives. So yeah. most of the time I also find with adult beginners, because kids are always like, yeah, that was great. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> but adults are almost the opposite where even if they do something that's really good, they're like, oh, that could yeah. be so much better. It's like, yeah. no, you have no idea how like this is, what you think is terrible is so good compared to where you were three weeks ago, um, yeah. right? So it, that also is, at least for my teaching and playing, I think the cello is the only place where I'm reasonable with myself because I've seen so many adults suffer 
through not meeting their goals or just, you know, it can be a drag for a while. And so with the cello, now that I've seen so many people go through the process, I say to myself, yes, you know what? I do not sound like Han Na Chang today, but let's just keep going and see where this is in six months and it will probably be better, right? <laughs> yeah. Just being reasonable. Yeah, um, it was um, one of my most liberating experiences. It happened at some point during my studies. I can't remember exactly when, but I, I stopped thinking about practice in this linear way of constant improvement or something which you know it, it's not the case for me at least so I just approach my cello playing and my practice just without much expectation every day basically and I, I think that it's pretty engraved in so many of us especially adults of course that there is there should be a linear progress and if they're having a bad day they feel really, you know, it's it's heavy for them. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm just trying to say that's that's totally normal. That happens for me too. It's not, it's not linear. It's I don't know what to call it instead, but it's just something dynamic. I feel like it goes kind of in stages, and when when people go on like at the beginning, it is really very like linear, right? Because every single lesson, everything is new. So it's like, even if you remember one new thing, that's one thing that you did not know the, the week before. And then, yeah, exactly. As you start to get towards, I don't know if you're using like the Suzuki books, but like three pages in, things will like level off and you, you start realizing that like, oh, I thought this sounded good, but actually this doesn't sound good because our ears, of course, we improve and our standards get higher and higher every couple weeks. But I always like to tell students that when you feel like you're on a plateau or there's no upward progress, what's actually happening is that all the technique and all of the information is actually becoming yours. It's, it's actually becoming your instincts as opposed to something that you have to think about. Mm -hmm. And then after that kind of cures and sets then you're on to like the next round of like new ideas. So, um, and then as you get higher and higher up that mountain, progress becomes much more difficult, right? There's a lot more resistance up towards the top. Um, but it doesn't mean that you're not, it doesn't mean that you're not like deepening your relationship with the instrument. I think that that's a good way to think about it instead of, yeah, a straight line or, or a graph that goes up, you just want to get deeper and broader. And also I think it's about getting to know yourself, isn't it? Like the relationship with your instrument mirrors your relationship with yourself, especially with adults. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Yes, I think so. And, uh, and that's such a beautiful thing that I'm actually trying to convey to the students as well so uh, I'm trying to install this I guess mindfulness aspect although I don't really use that word to them I don't want to uh, <laughs> yeah everybody <laughs> tenses up when they heard mindfulness it's true <laughs> but just you know sit and maybe before making any sounds just sit there to become aware of yourself and and give yourself that space to allow yourself to to express what wants to come out then and there it, even if it's just open strings that's a different experience every time uh, depending yeah. on how you feel 
Yeah. What I like about your approach also, um, if we're, if we go back to talking about like Facebook or, um, uh, social media stuff, there does seem to be a very competitive, um, um, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to say like show off, but like, I hear a lot of people who are like, I practice this very regimented way and I practice six hours a day and tomorrow I'm going to practice seven hours a day. And there's, it's kind of, I think people forget that social media, I don't want to say that it's a lie, but it's, we're not showing how things really are a lot of the time and that that is not the ideal and that there's no competition and that it also doesn't really matter so much what you practice. It matters how you practice. Hmm. Right. And so I think that your thinking on this is such a nice tonic to the very aggressive and competitive and the opposite of mindful. It's sort of a, it's prideful and sort of intellect driven as opposed to just something that's personal for you. And you don't need to compare against anybody else because we have no idea where anybody else is going anywhere <laughs> anyway, right? Like what, what everybody's journey is completely different. Yes, it yeah. is. I remember being in high school and uh, some of the uh, people I went to music school with, they practiced many hours a day. And I guess I had this thought that, oh, okay, so now I'm doing like two, three hours a day, I guess. By the time I'm studying, I'm also doing, you know, four or five, six hours a day. But I never really got there. I I plateaued at two, three hours a day. I never really got much above that, even during my studies, uh, during my master's degree I didn't really dare to say to my teacher how little I actually practiced because I it's, think that's not little though a lot more. It, and the thing is practicing it's not, well it's not. exactly so I just wanted to make sure that I enjoyed it every time I practiced and that I would not acquire bad habits from mindless practice like mechanic practice and I didn't want to injure myself so when I feel that my concentration is down I simply stop you know that's it for today yeah because I um my philosophy is like every every repetition you do is like a check that goes in the bank account of this is how I play and so if you have 10 hours of just not thinking about it and your hand is tense or you're not paying attention to the the shift or whatever, when you go to cash out, some of that's going to be in your playing because you've practiced that as much as you've practiced really being, you know, knowing where your shifts are or your training or whatever it is. So um, I think a lot of people are afraid to put the instrument down or think that like you have to, the only way to to progress is with like regimented, very consistent practice. And I think that the thing that needs to be consistent is the quality of your mind as opposed to the repetitive nature of it. Um, But also two to three hours, that is really, that is kind of a long time, especially if you're having good practice. Um, Yeah. yeah, So um, yeah. And the injury avoidance, especially as adults, it's just something that we all have to consider because um, they don't, 
they, they always joke that the warranty, the warranty breaks at about 30, where you just can't abuse your body. Like it will push back. You will end up with an injury of some sort. So it's, it's good to think about that. Yeah. Um, so you work with students in person and online. You do both of those. Yes, I haven't done a lot online yet, but I have opened an online course where it's possible to have online lessons as a part of the course. And I have done a little bit of online teaching. So I know that it's actually not so bad. I mean, it's a lot can be done online. Yeah. Um, what do you feel is the is the main difference or some of the differences when you're teaching online? Well, um, well, obviously, I can't help them tune their cello. That's physically. hard. That would be hard. So I, yeah, w- one of the few times I had an online lesson, it was with uh, a girl, a young girl, and I told her to, well, she had to use the tuning peg. Oh, gosh. To, and, and the string broke. <laughs> so that's, um, yeah, that's not... Uh, so good but uh, yeah it's also of course hard to play along with your students even demonstrating something you know it it just won't sound as good there will be delay and the sound will be distorted and so there are for sure limitations but I think if it's not a total beginner maybe it can anyway be very useful for sure, because as a, as a teacher, you definitely get an idea of how they're doing when they're playing on the screen. Yeah, and I think that um, I got, I, I realized when I first, I did, I've been teaching online for a long time, but now I'm teaching only online, basically. And I realized how much I was leaning on my ability to touch my student and change their technique with my hands or like, you mm-hmm. know, put my hands on their shoulders and be like, okay, now play this with relaxed shoulders, mm-hmm. um, which at first seems like a disadvantage. But if the student is open to it, making them in charge of their own shoulders, that is more likely to actually get them to lower their shoulders when I'm not yes. around. Yeah. Um, so I feel like it can kind of be an advantage. And also you have to develop, I think, a better lexicon like you have to be able to say things a number of different ways hmm. for different students and focus. I think you can also focus, um, you have to focus on different things in an online lesson. And yeah, you're right. I, I really do miss playing along with my students. Um, what we started to do over the past couple of weeks is we've done um, a little bit of improvisation where it's call and response. Mm. So I play two notes yeah. And then they're going to play two notes back to me. And then we do kind of a variation and build. So we're making music, but we're not playing at the same time. Um, But yeah, I really miss playing duets. I used to play those Lee duets with my students. And like, it was such a nice way to finish each lesson. I do miss that a whole lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, So the last time we talked, um, you got me all excited about the Schnitzky project that you're doing, um, especially because it was a concerto that I, I mean, I guess not a lot of people are familiar with it. Um, so I guess first, um, tell me a little bit about um, what you're doing right now. This is the second cello concerto that you've been kind of critically studying. Yeah, uh, well, critically studying. I was never as much of a nerd as I wanted to be. You know, I I was hoped I could be 
able to really get deep into something but it's it's hard at some point I just feel satisfied kind of so I guess my my study is mainly into the, the actual playing of the piece yes. uh, but of course I have done a little bit of research as well so anyway I have just come to acknowledge that there is this one cello concerto that is really close to my heart and I have to do something about it <laughs> otherwise it's kind of haunting me uh, when I was at 12 13 it was my goal in life to play the Dvorsha concerto I remember I couldn't like I, I didn't understand how cellists could do anything after that after they played it's basically a symphony with a cello concerto in it right like it's a it's a big work and it does everything that the cello can do right it's so yeah massive it's beautiful and after my my uh, intense enthusiasm for the Dvorak cooled down a little bit and this other piece came in which is the second concerto by Alfred Schnittke written in 1990 or uh, 89, 90. Uh, it was just a strange happening. I was a bachelor student playing his first sonata, which I guess is his most well-known piece for cello. And a fellow student of mine said, why don't you listen to his other pieces for cello as well? So I did. And the second concerto stuck with me and I kept coming back to it again and again and I listened to it every day and I decided I had to play that piece so I asked my uh, teacher can I play this piece so this was only about halfway through my bachelor's degree and um and I guess most teachers would have said no I think you should play more standard repertoire before uh, getting into this atonal piece but he said I could do it so I was extremely happy and I found the score it exists only as orchestral score yeah the Sikorsky edition um, as far as I know at least I haven't seen a printed cello part solo part yet and this just made it uh, it motivated me even more I think to learn it because it felt even more like my my initiative and my project. So yeah, this is um, this is ten years ago now, and I learned it and I played it in school, not with an orchestra though, but I played it, and then I I uh, left it at that. But uh, yeah, it still um, came back to me recently. So I realized I had to do more with it to have some peace of mind. So I realized, <laughs> you know, how can I? um it's not it's not so easy to find an orchestra that wants to play this piece but I mean I'm not a, a well-known cellist I'm not really a you know a soloist and also this piece is quite long and strange it's not everyone's favorite piece so um I decided that my project now is simply to revisit the piece so that I can play it well enough to reach out to um a cellist here to left then asking for a lesson on it because he is the only one as far as I know who recorded the piece who is still alive 
He's one of my favorite cellists. His box yeah. suites are my absolute favorite. Oh, right. Yeah, he just he's <gasps> a he's a prince of music. I love yeah. him. <laughs> yes, and he I I really love the way he plays the Schnitke. So much authority and just mm, it's uh, really great. So so that's my project right now. I've never met him, although I I live in the country he's from, and I guess he spends a lot of time here. Uh, so um, I will soon, I think, reach out to him and ask, uh, well, first I should ask what he charges for a lesson because my economy isn't really the best right now. But I made a video blog kind of about about this particular project of mine. It's on YouTube. It's called My Schnitke Diary. And it's just me uh, going through a movement at a time and a little bit about my thoughts about the music and uh, I say a little bit about my experience with memorizing atonal music versus tonal music and also um, something that was especially um, well that made this project special right now is that I contacted Goldsmiths University in London and asked if they could share a, a like scan of a photocopy of Schnitke's <laughs> original handwritten score because I could tell from the recordings of the piece. So Rostropovich recorded it. It was uh, written for him. And also Alexander Ivashkin recorded it. He died only, only a few years ago. Uh, and when listening to those recordings, it's very clear that in the Sikorsky edition that I have, there are a few misprints. And although I could tell from the recordings more or less what those misprints might be, I wasn't quite sure. And I really wanted to see the original score. And yeah. uh, Goldsmith sent a PDF to me. It was incredibly generous of them. They scanned all the, I think it's 77 pages Oof. that they <laughs> sent me. So that's Jaschnitke's handwritten score. It was pretty magical to just see that for me and I've been comparing. what is his script like what is his writing like is it neat it's actually uh fairly easy to read I was pleasantly surprised because uh late in his life he could only use his left hand so it was really hard to decipher what he was writing but oh. uh but when he wrote that particular concerto he could still use his right hand by the look of it because I could I could tell what he wrote yes. yeah actually my favorite music to read because you know some editions are so cramped like actually most of the Dvorak's right it looks like a car accident on the page right it's so close together but my favorite things to read are um, all the Shostakovich symphonies because they're all handwritten but the measures are massive so you can really see all of the notes very clearly so I actually I prefer reading handwritten notes if they are if the spacing is good yeah. but um I would I would love to um see if uh like you would put a page of that up so people might be able to see is it on your um on your Shitka diary like you know I would have loved to do that but I don't want to break any oh agreement. it's like a copyright yeah so I I just don't want to risk it. Okay, fair enough. Because I'll see they... if I can find any examples of his of his hand yeah. on online. I'm sure there's something out there. Yeah. Yes. Um, and 
I suppose just like as we're finishing up, um, like you, you've, you're finishing up. No, you're not even finishing up. You're kind of midway through this uh, Schnittke project, which could actually be something pretty significant, especially if you end up taking um, lessons and finding an ensemble that's game to play this monumental piece with you. Um, what are some of your your goals in the near term and the long term, both as a teacher and a performer? Yeah, I um, I realized recently I'm I'm never very goal oriented. Uh, someone said it's a masculine trait to be goal oriented and <laughs> a feminine trait to be process oriented, and I realized this process-oriented feminine side of me is definitely dominant with me but I have some goals anyway at least that's what I'm I'm trying to be more goal-oriented to balance out my masculine and feminine so I want to make a living as a freelance cellist that's what I'm working on and it's been going in the right direction for sure but it it takes time I only started this particular journey um, not even two years ago. And there was this, yeah, most of 2021, I guess, was still a little bit of COVID restrictions and a little hard. So anyway, I, I want to get to the place where I am making a living, not just getting by, but also earning enough to be able to save some, mm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> just like being comfortable in that. I really think it's possible um and I would really like to perform more so I guess as I was starting out I I was thinking well teaching seems like the most stable safe thing I should really work on like building my teaching practice but I realize now that although I love teaching I don't want to teach all day every day I would really love to perform uh, both as a soloist and as a chamber musician so yeah networking getting to know people see if I can you know how I can get into all of that um, and also I am um, I really want my online course to be a part of my income I really enjoyed making it and it's something that I will just keep on working on and expanding for the foreseeable future so I, I was really that's definitely a goal that that's um a service that I managed to reach out to people with I'm now trying to promote it you know how how to promote oneself so I'm trying to angle my social media towards that how can I reach the people who might be interested in my online course yeah it's it is tough because even though like we're told don't be ashamed. You should promote yourself. I think there's just so many different people promoting themselves. And after a while, it becomes very difficult to even know, is this person just kind of, is this kind of BS or is this the thing for me? Is this special? Is it not? That's really, that's really hard. And I think over time, the right people end up finding their way to you. But the problem is like paying bills doesn't care about time, right? <laughs> like it, it has to happen at a certain frequency. Um, 
So the online course, that's something that people can download and watch. It's video tutorials that can right. be streamed. I actually don't know if they can be downloaded, but I, oh yeah, I, no, streamed is, so, is fine. Yeah. I'm so bad with software, but I imagine that anyone who really wants to download something will find a way of doing it anyway, right? I think it's that's true. <laughs> that's how it works. Um, so yeah, video tutorials and I have made information sheets to go with it that I am, um, I'm actually really inspired by the sheets that you have a few sheets on your homepage. Oh, right? the practice guides. Yeah. yeah things like that. So that's the things I would maybe like to make in the future. Cause I've been making things by hand now because that's the way I'm comfortable with making things. But as I look at it, I, I think that getting into how to make things like you do on a computer would be a good yeah good tool <laughs> maybe you can give me a tip on <laughs> on how to get into that yeah I have to say I wouldn't be able to do any of it without how simple um Apple products make it to like make beautiful things because when I was working I've worked with PCs and Macs like my whole life and when I was writing music for TV like we were using the Mac for the interface but everything else was on a PC but um a lot of the stuff I I was I've done was actually very low tech very just dragging and dropping and and formatting text boxes and you know it, it was really actually quite it, the thing is it was low lo-fi not super high tech but it ended up taking a long time and that's what i'm learning about you know we're expected to push all this quote unquote content out into the world but i mean the, each of those practice guides took me probably a week to format even though i've had the the information is obviously right on the tip of my tongue so um it's you're not um you're not doing it wrong if it takes a long time basically uh, everybody says wow yeah i i made a 3 minute video and it took me 4 hours yeah it's yes. it's just, it's it's a crazy way to spend time yes, but um so we're going to make sure that there's links to all of this good stuff um are you accepting um online students right now so if people who are listening would like to study with you and get your your ideas Absolutely. Yes, I'm accepting that. I live in Sweden, though. There is a time difference. So it's like, would be, um, I guess, late morning, early afternoon time for uh, you in the there's, US. There's lots of people who would actually love to have a lesson before work or before they have to take care of their kids. Um, mm. So I think it actually could be a, a huge benefit. And also, it's just really nice. Even people who take with me, I love it when they take for a little while with somebody else, um, just because it refreshes them. And they also tend to hear the same exact things from another teacher, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in a different way. Yes. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Right. I had the best teachers and I swear to God, I just couldn't hear what they were saying to me because I wasn't ready for it. And then mm. 10 years later, I was teaching somebody else and I realized what they meant. And I'm like, oh yeah. God, my life would have been so much easier if I could have heard that <laughs> when yes. my teacher was telling me that. Yeah. So I think it's wonderful. And um, we've had other teachers um, build their studios through this podcast. We've had a couple of people come on and had like attention given to them. So I would really hope if people are considering finding a teacher, changing teachers, starting the instrument, they can check you out. They can try. Is your, um, the online tutorials, are they mostly for people in the early stages of learning? 
for the time being, yes, I wanted to take it from the very beginning. So we I need more of that. On yeah. Like, uh, you know, finding the right chair, how to sit, how, you know, putting Rosin on the board, the super basic things. Uh, but there will be more and more stuff for intermediate learners as well. Yeah. And that's great. You know, if, uh, if, if uh, whoever is listening has a particular interest in in getting into atonal music or memorizing atonal music, that's maybe something I can help out with. So they can, uh, to get an impression of me, at least go, yeah, check out my Schlitke diary on YouTube. That's where I'm maybe the most myself <laughs> in my well, practice room, walking and talking and yeah. Actually, I should probably schedule a lesson with you. I just started the Prokofiev Symphony Concertant just because oh I've never played it. And it just, since I'm in no danger of performing it, right? I have all, I've got a lot of time to learn it and it's, it's beautiful and crazy. Um, so maybe you could help me memorize that. But I wanted to say one other thing. Um, I heard something, I think it might've been on your Instagram. You were playing, I think it was the prelude of the fifth suite yeah and you did things with your bow that i've never seen anybody else do you were doing uh -huh. these beautiful very nuanced like dotted figures and everybody else is out in the middle of the bow or at the tip and you were doing them on the edge of the hair at the frog and it was so interesting and beautiful so if i can find a link to that like i just thought it was it's hard for bach to sound new right we all play bach we all listen to bach and it's just like it sounded so fresh and mysterious and i was just like what is this beautiful bach i'm hearing it was so oh, so good wow i have to revisit that myself because i can't remember what i was doing it's really nice to hear someone uh, noticing something like that yeah no it's just it was very different um and right i come from like the los angeles school of like beat your instrument into submission right lots of very loud forceful <laughs> you know even in bach it was sort of like let's let's beat bach today oh. and and i've i've come back from that actually but um but that was always the approach I grew up with. So seeing your take on it was just so lovely. And I think the the fact that COVID made all of us go much more online, um, there are downsides to it. But I think the upside is that now I'm talking to my new Norwegian friend who lives in Stockholm, right? That like, what a, what a weird, awesome thing that is. So hopefully um, <laughs> our little like network of people, this is a small podcast, but the people who listen are crazy about it. <laughs> so mm, hopefully nice. like this little network of people can kind of count you among the people they look to for resources when they want to learn new things about the instrument. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. All right. It was, I play my uh, my American cello, Lewis and Clark. Oh yeah, I love those. It's right. I think I think you were playing the black cello. I think at yeah. that time. Yes, and it's actually in the states now for repair. So my cello is not so far from you. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm like I, that's what I felt. I felt something. I'm like, is her cello near me? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll have all the information. Uh, all the links. Um, and if anybody wants to contact you, uh, what's the best email address for you? My email address is ragnhild at vesenberg.org. 
dot org. I'm a dot org person yeah. too, so I appreciate that. Really? Yeah, I, I have it because my mom is, well, both my parents are organists. <laughs> so um, it was my uncle who thought it would be really funny if my mom had a dot org for organist. So I also have a dot org for organist. Yeah, yes. I appreciate that. Organists are a whole different breed of people. They play oh, with yeah. their hands and their feet. Oh my God. Yes. yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again. Ooh, thank you for having me. Thank you.